This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of, no of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat, it, eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at Wollongong Baptist Church. Um, if you're new or visiting and I haven't met you, welcome. I'm glad you're here. If you're a regular, I'm also glad you're here. It's good to see you guys here. Um, what's also just already been said is we're continuing on a series called The Roots of Redemption from Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 12. Um, what we're doing this series is after the sermon, there's going to be a question time. Uh, and so if you have a question that you'd like me to answer, uh, then please text into the number that is on the screen. Uh, and then I'll try and answer a few of them after the sermon. Uh, so please feel free to do that. Um, the reason why this series is called Roots of Redemption is because the book of Genesis, uh, it sort of just introduces us to some key themes, some key roots, if you want to put it that way, in the Bible's story of redemption. The Bible's story of how God is a good God who saves those who rebel against Him, a God who redeems through His Son, Jesus. 
Last week we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 1 we got introduced to the main character of this redemption story, to God. We got introduced to the setting, which is creation, and we got introduced to the supporting act, which is, well, humanity. And what we saw in Genesis chapter 1 was that um, our creator is both God and good, that creation is not God but is good, and that humanity is the climax of God's creation. This week we're looking at Genesis chapter 2. And it's almost like in Genesis chapter 1, its main focus is God. In Genesis chapter 2, its main focus is humanity. And in Genesis chapter 2, we learn three things about humanity. Probably more, but at least three things. We learn about how does humanity relate to its creation. Or in other words, we learn about the topic of work. Then we also learn about how does humanity relate to God. Or we learn about the topic of a sin, which we'll look at in a few weeks' time, as well as we'll look at work in two weeks' time. And then thirdly, we look at the topic of how does humanity relate to one another, or in other words, the topic of marriage. And that is what we're going to be looking at tonight. But before we open up Genesis 2 and we look at this text and also this topic of marriage, um, the unfortunate reality is, is that majority of us have some baggage when it comes to this topic, and this can be a sensitive topic. Um, and as we come to God's word tonight, you might disagree with some of the things it says. And so for that reason, I just want to pray for us to get us in the, the right mindset as we come to God's word. So if you're the praying type, uh, please bow your head with me as I pray. Uh, Father God, I just want to come before you and um, we want to thank you for your word. And we thank you for how you teach us through it. We thank you for the book of Genesis. Um, and Lord, we just pray that you be with us right now, Lord, that you may... Uh, have clear minds and calm hearts, and Lord, we may come to see what you want us to learn and to know through this passage. Um, and Lord, most importantly, Father, we pray that you may teach us about your Son and how good he is tonight. We may worship him in response. Help us, Lord, to trust that you are a good creator, but as on top of that, a good designer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we live in a, in a world that's a bit confusing. We live in a world where a lot of people uh, despise marriage, but also a lot of people desire marriage. Firstly, we live in a world that a lot of people despise marriage, or in other words, people have a very pessimistic view of marriage. According to the Australian Institute of Family Studies, the Australian divorce rate has doubled since 1970 in Australia. And according to the company called McCrindle Research, uh, one in three marriages end in divorce. And it's because of such statistics that I think a lot of Australians have got a very low view of marriage. Uh, this week, as I was preparing for this sermon, I came across a blog titled 10 Reasons Why Not to Get Married. Um, I'll give you the 10 reasons, uh, but just heads up so you're aware. This was a, a blog that was on a men's site, so it was like a site for men, written about men. So it's a bit sexist, so you got a warning. Anyway, here's the 10 reasons that they say you shouldn't get married. Reason number one, marriage makes your woman put on weight. Uh, reason number two, marriage is the end of your options. Three, marriage is expensive. Four, marriage is paperwork. Five, marriage is the end of spontaneity. Six, marriage is about constant compromise. Seven, marriage is the end of sex. Eight, marriage often fails. Nine, marriage is the end of taking risk. And 10, marriage is forever. I think this list, as sexist and controversial as it is, I think is a, a good summary of how some people view marriage and how they have a low opinion of it. In our society, people have, despise marriage. And yet at the same time, in our society, a lot of people desire marriage. 
For example, about 50% of all people, all Australians who are over 15 are married. Another example is that the Australian wedding industry generates about $2 billion uh, worth of uh, money each year. It's a big industry. And on top of that, this desire for, to be married is just illustrated so perfectly like by TV shows such as The Bachelor. Uh, which is a tangent, can I say, is a weird show about a man dating multiple women at once that is mainly watched by women who hate men who date multiple women at once. It's a bit of a weird show, in my opinion. Anyway, I sold that. I didn't get you anyway. Um, in particular, though, in Christian circles, I think marriage is something that we desire. As Christians, we believe that marriage is a context where people should enjoy one another sexually. It's where children should be raised. And so I think as Christians, a lot of us desire to be married. Marriage has been, and I can always will be, a hot topic for society and for Christians. And so for that reason, I think it's important that we see what does the Bible teach about marriage? And that's what we're going to do tonight, when we're going to see what it teaches us about marriage from Genesis 2 and also some other parts of Scripture, but mainly in Genesis 2. So I'm not going to teach us everything that the Bible says about marriage. We're going to see what Genesis 2 says about it. And what we're going to learn tonight is three truths about marriage. We're going to learn about three truths. We're going to firstly learn about the desire of marriage, secondly, the design of marriage, and thirdly, the purpose. Let me repeat that because the structure of this sermon, the desire, the design, and the purpose of marriage. So if you have your Bibles there, open them up. We're going to look at Genesis 2, and we're going to start in verse 18. And we're going to go to verse 25 tonight. Uh, But heads up, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to tell the story and then I'm going to reflect and we're going to talk about what it tells us about marriage. Okay, so you have your Bible. Let's look at verse 18. I'll read 18 to 20. The Lord God said, It was not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the name the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. We'll stop there. Um, my wife, Emma, who unfortunately is not here tonight because she's feeling unwell, and I uh, have been married for six years. Um, and let me tell you, it, it is by the grace of God that Emma married me. Now, why do I say that? Maybe you already can guess that from seeing how we interact, but um, let me just say, I was pretty slow at trying to become a romantic. What do I mean by that? Okay, well, so when I asked Emma out, I did that really cowardly thing of I asked a friend of hers if she liked me before I actually asked her out, so that's how I began. But then only a few dates in as well, I decided to use a voucher to pay for dinner one time. Now you're thinking, oh, it's okay, Joel, use a voucher, that's that's very shrewd of you, but yeah, I used a voucher to pay for my dinner, but not for her dinner. Um, and I didn't offer to pay for her dinner as well. Um, in my defense, I was 18 and dirt poor, but at the same time, it was pretty poor form. But luckily for Emma, she stuck with me, right? She's like, it's not going to get better from here. Um, and so for, and luckily for her, oh, no, not lucky for her. Anyway, and now for our first, our second, and even our third dating anniversary, I took a Hungry Jack's. Uh, even for one of them, I ate one of her burgers. Uh, um, <laughs> I was sick. So once again, there's there's reasons. But anyway, now, why am I telling you about how terrible of a boyfriend I was? Well, it took me a while to get some romantic success. You know what? That was the same for Adam. I don't know if you noticed this, but in Genesis 2.18, we're told that it was not good for man to be alone. So in other words, Adam was alone. He was lonely, maybe crying himself to sleep at night. He wants someone to cuddle. 
And then God comes along and says, mate, I've got this covered. I've got this covered. I'm going to be your wingman. We're going to find you the one. We're going to find you your helper. And so then God being the brilliant God he is and the cheeky God he is, he then decides, all right, let's go through who I've created. And so he brings all the animals, all the birds, one by one to God to see if one of them will suit. You know, it's almost like it's a scene on The Bachelor. You know, it's almost like you've got this giraffe, this gorilla, this donkey, you know, coming out of the limo in a tight dress, you know, coming towards Adam. And he's just like, no, no, please, no, no, not the hairy gorilla, no. Like, and then we get told in verse 20 that no suitable helper was found. Oh, sorry, I think not verse 20, verse 20. Oh, no, it is 20. But then, thankfully to Adam, God stuck true to his word, and he said, all right, I'll create you one. And so look what happens in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. So what happens here? God puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib out of his side, creates a woman. And then it's almost like the lights fade, the music starts to play, God brings Eve towards Adam, naked. And then instead of naming her, like he named all the other animals, where he's like dog, cat, possum, he like breaks into a song, like he gets all romantic and poetic. And then he says in verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, the, now the Hebrew word for now literally means at last. So it's almost, he's like, at last, the one I've been waiting for my whole life, however long that is, I've, I've found her. But also the word for woman in Hebrew can be translated mine. So it's almost like Adam has looked at naked Eve and just screamed, mine. You know, like those little, um, what's it called, seagulls or finding Nemo, like mine, 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 mine. You know, it's almost, he's like, hands off monkey, she's mine, she's mine. In, verses, in these verses, we see, like, he gets all poetic because it's climactic that this woman is created. She's important. And then what we see in verses 24 to 25, where we get told about the first marriage. I'll read out to you. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. These verses are trying to explain to us that this is a marriage that is going on right here. You see, we get told that, you know, the husband will leave his family, that he'll be united to his wife, that they'll become one flesh sexually, but also as a couple and with intimacy. So in Genesis 2, we learn about the first marriage in history. That's the story. But what does it teach us about marriage? Well, the first truth that I want us to look at is the desire for marriage, the desire for marriage. You see, in Genesis 2, man was given a purpose. He was given a purpose of working. We also get told that he's in a paradise, he's in Eden. He's got a perfect relationship with God. Like, he almost, like you think he has it all. But then in verse 18 of chapter 2, we get told it is not good for man to be alone. And that's, that should strike a chord with us, that we should see that and go, that's weird. Because in Genesis chapter 1, after everything God created, he said, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then here he says, and that's not good. That's not good. So why is it not good for Adam to be all alone? I think that's an important question to ask. Well, in Genesis chapter 1, we learned that um, um, humanity was created to rule, but then also to fill the earth. And so we can ask that question, okay, was, did, was it bad for Adam to be alone because he needed help to rule and fill the earth? Well, yes, that is true. 
Like, it's pretty hard for Adam to rule Eden, let alone the earth by himself. And it's pretty hard for him to multiply by himself. So yes, he he needed a helper. He needed someone to help him in his work. But is that the only reason why it was bad for Adam to be alone? Well, I think there's more to it than that. You see, I think the main reason why it was bad for Adam to be alone is because God designed humans, not for marriage per se, but he designed them for relationships. He designed them for community. Last week, we saw in Genesis 1.26 that God made humanity in his image. And what I explained last week is that that's a complex term, and what it means is it means a lot of things. But what I explained last week is that to be made in the image of God is to be one of his ruling representatives on earth. Here in Genesis 2, we learn a bit more about what it means to be created in the image of God. You see, in Genesis 1.26, it says, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And it uses plural language here instead of the singular language to hint to us about the Trinitarian nature of God. To hint to us how God exists as one God, but in three different persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are all equally God, but have different roles and responsibilities. You see, according to the Bible, God is a personal God. He's a communal God. He's a relational God. And so as he makes Adam and he says, it's not good for him to be alone. He's there going, it's not good for you to be alone because I've never been alone. Because I'm a God that's in relationship. And so you should be made in relationship as well. So one of the reasons is, yes, Adam needed help to rule and to reproduce, but also because he was created to be relational. I think when we come across this verse, and, and I, I think if you're single or divorced or widowed and, and you desire to get married, I think maybe you can read this verse of Adam's loneliness and think if it's not good for Adam to be alone, then why is it good for me to be alone? God, why haven't you provided me with a partner like you did for him? I think there's a temptation to read this verse and to think I'll only be complete if I become a wife or a mother or if I become a husband or a father. When I think... What's going on here is it's not actually saying that it was bad for Adam to be single, but instead it was bad that he was living in solitude. You see, Adam, he did need Eve, yes, to create a community, but also to be in a community with. And so, friends, if today you're here and you're not married and you desire marriage, can I just point out to you that that comes from a deeper longing to be in a community and to be in a relationship And for that reason, here at WBC, we're always encouraging you guys to get engaged with our community. Engage with our community on Sunday nights as well as during the week. Now, so I'm clear, I've only been here for a few months, but I know this, this church is not perfect. The people in this room will let you down. They will frustrate you. I'll frustrate you. I'll let you down. They will test you. They will grow you in holiness but just like a husband or a wife would. You see, one of the reasons why God gives us the gift of marriage as well as the church is to make us more like his son as we encourage one another, as we live in community. Each week, I am tempted to disengage from loving my wife because it's hard. And each week, we are tempted to disengage from loving people of our church because it's hard. And yet, it is through community and it's through marriage where we grow to be more like Jesus. And so I just want to encourage us with that and to remember that reality. 
And can I encourage you to get connected and to engage in this community, as well as other communities, yes, but in this community, because this is the only community which is going to encourage you to be more like Jesus. And is going to want to sharpen you and to want to see you grow in holiness. I just think that's, I think that's important. You see, throughout church history, what's happened is Christians have either idolized marriage or they've demonized marriage. What do I mean by that? Well, for hundreds of years, Christians, they pretty much demonized marriage to the point where they thought, if you're married, you cannot be as holy as someone who is single. And that's why the priests, for example, were, were not allowed to get married. Whereas today, maybe we've done a flip or like we've gone to the other end of the pendulum swing, if you want to put it that way, in Protestant churches. And we think, actually, no, the best thing is to be married. And if you want to be holy, then you want to be married. And being single, there's something wrong with you. You're not as godly as those who are. And yet in the Bible, what do we learn? We learn from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians that both marriage and singleness is a gift from God. That one is not better than the other. So like I said, I think there's a temptation probably more in our culture to idolize marriage than it is to demonize it. So how do we idolize marriage? How can we look out for that and watching our hearts? Well, I think if you're married, one way you can do this is by looking to your spouse to give you only the things that God can give you. You can do this when you look to your spouse's love, respect, affirmation to give you meaning in life. Or as a married person, maybe you can idolize marriage by constantly trying to set other people up. If you're unmarried, how can you idolize marriage? Well, I know it's hard, but I think not finding contentment in in being single. And I also think that you can idolize marriage by having these unrealistic expectations of what marriage is going to be like or what your spouse is going to be like. I think all of us, both married and unmarried, need to check our hearts just to see whether or not marriage has become an idol. From Genesis 2, what we learn is our first truth about marriage and that the desire for marriage comes from a deeper longing in our heart to be in community and to have relationships. But also we learn in Genesis 2 about the design of marriage. Let's look at that, point number two, the design of marriage. So in Genesis, what we see here is that God is the designer of marriage. The word to marry literally means to bring together or to join together. And here you see God is bringing together Adam and Eve. Like he literally creates Eve for Adam, brings them together. And it's important that we see here that God is the designer of marriage. You know, it's not like God created Adam and Eve and then he went for a walk and then he came back, found them cuddling and was like, what on earth is going on here? Like, he he knew what this was going on here. He designed it. He is the creator of sex and intimacy. He is a good God and a good designer. But what was God's design for marriage? In other words, what was it meant to look like? What was the blueprint? What do we learn from Genesis 2 about how God wanted marriage to work? Some of you already know this, but not all of you. So I thought I might embarrass myself a bit more. Um, when I was in primary school, I used to do tap dancing. Um, I kid you not, it was one time I did this duet in a cowboy suit to the song Five, Six, Seven, Eight. Um, that was glorious days. Um, now, when I did this duet tap dancing with a partner, majority of the dancing was about us tapping in time. It was about doing the same moves with one another. Uh, it wasn't about us... Uh, moving with one another or or me leading the the person or the person leading me. But for my wedding dance with my wife, Emma, when we did a ballroom dance, in that dance, I had to lead my wife, Emma, and my my wife, Emma, had to help me 
lead her. And if I didn't do that, if like we both tried to lead or one of us or both didn't try and lead, then it would have been disastrous and we would have stepped all over each other's feet. You see, in ballroom dancing, you're moving as one. And when you do this, you need a leader and you need a helper. When it comes to marriage, it's a weird question, but I think it's a helpful question to ask. Is a marriage relationship like tap dancing or is it like ballroom dancing? Well, let's look at Genesis and let's see how God designed marriage. Last week in Genesis 1 verse 27, what we learned is, like I said before, is that God created us in his image. And what that means is that God created both man and woman with equal value and equal worth. And what that also means in regards to marriage, that marriage is a partnership between two equals. This truth is confirmed to us in Genesis chapter 2. You see, Adam maybe was created first, but then look at how Adam responds when Eve is created. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And singing these words, it's almost like Adam is declaring, this woman is like me. She's made in God's image like me. But even though Eve was created second, she's like the climax of this narrative. She's important, just as important as Adam. And so in Genesis, we see that God designed marriage to be between two equals. But then also in Genesis 2, we see that God designed marriage to be a partnership between two different people. Where do I get that in the text? Well, look at Genesis 2 again. You see, what we see is Adam is created first and that he's created out of the ground, while Eve is created second and she's created out of his rib. What we see is that Adam is basically called a worker in verse 15. And then in verse 18, the woman is called his helper. What we see here in this passage is it's clear that these two people are equal, but they're different. You see, equally, they've got the same worth, but functionally, they've got different roles. And what's clear here is that their roles are not trying to compete against one another, but complement one another. You see, I think in Genesis 2, we see the foundations of how God designed marriage to be a complementarian partnership between two people who are equal, but have got different roles and responsibilities. Now, maybe you're wondering, Joel, okay, what does this complementarian partnership look like? Well, good question. Let's have a look at verse 18 of chapter 2 again. So it says this, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. So we just covered that before. Let's look at the next part. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Like, let's be honest, this verse can be quite controversial, especially if you're a woman and you can get a bit annoyed by this verse. And what does it mean that she was made to be his helper suitable for him? But what does it actually mean? Well, why don't we go through and let's have a look at it. And to do so, we're going to look at the words for helper and the words for suitable. So firstly, what does it mean to be a helper? Well, the Hebrew word for helper is regularly used in the Bible in regards to military reinforcements. So in other words, the word here for helper, you could translate it a little army. Would it make sense? But you could do it. Now, uh, not all of us here, but some of us here have played Call of Duty or played a computer game or, or played paintball or played laser tag. And when you call out for reinforcements, you're calling out for help. You're calling out for someone to come help you in your weakness. You see, the word for helper, it's not a weak word. It's a strong word. But on top of that, it's actually a divine word. Like God uses this word for helper in reference to himself on numerous occasions throughout the scriptures. And so if God uses it to describe himself, then a helper is someone who's in a position of honor. This is not a weak position. This is not a weak title. 
And so when God calls Eve a helper here, he's complimenting her. He's saying she's designed in such a way to strengthen Adam where he is weak. Now, with that said, it's important that I also make something clear here. When the word for helper is used in Hebrew, but also English, uh, it refers to someone who is helping someone else fulfill their primary responsibility. Um, Let me illustrate what I mean by that. So like if Mark, who's one of the pastors here, came to me this week and said, Joel, can you help me with this sermon? What he's not asking me to do is to write that sermon for him, to do his job for him. He's asking me to help him as he fulfills his primary responsibility. In Genesis chapter 2, what we see is that Adam is the leader and his primary responsibility is to fill and rule the earth or to work the ground. And Eve is created to be his helper. Now, where do I get that from the text? Well, like I said, Adam is created first, which is a big deal, especially for Hebrew culture. But on top of that, Adam is given authority, like he names things, just like how God named things in Genesis chapter 1, and he even names Eve. You see, what we see here is that God has designed marriage to be a complementarian partnership where the man is the leader and the woman is the helper, and they both work together to fill and and rule the earth. Now, I know this might be offensive to some of us here, And I know maybe some of you, one question you've got is, doesn't this make Eve inferior to to Adam? Well, no. Because to say that Eve is inferior to Adam because she helps Adam would be similar to saying that God is inferior to us because he helps us. It's important that we grasp that. So that's what it means to be a helper. But what does it mean for Eve to be made suitable for Adam or suitable for him? Well, the Hebrew for this suitable for him uh, literally can be translated like opposite. Now, how can someone be made like and opposite at the same time? It doesn't seem to make sense. How's that possible? Well, it's not really possible unless they're made as complements to one another. You know, just like a jigsaw, two jigsaw pieces. You know, they're like one another, but they're also opposite to one another. And that's why they match up with one another. It's important that we understand that Eve wasn't created out of Adam's ribs so that he'd be inferior to him, but that so she may be intimate with him, that she may compliment him. There's a guy called Matthew Henry who's uh, written a commentary, and he summarizes this verse really beautifully when he, um, he says this, and hopefully it should come up on the screen. He says, The woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. You see, Genesis 2 here, it's trying to lay the foundations here for God's design for marriage. A complementarian partnership between two equals who have got two different responsibilities. What we see here is that marriage is more like a ballroom dance than it is like a tap dance. Someone needs to lead and someone needs to be the helper. Now today, if you're married and you're a believer or a Christian and you believe the Bible is God's word, then I think it's important that you understand and think through how does a husband lead and how does a a wife help in a marriage? If you're a husband or you're soon to be one, I think it's important that you do not abuse, you do not abdicate, you do not abandon, you do not avoid your responsibility to lead and love your wife. Like, how do I do this, Joel? Well, memorize Ephesians 5 verse 25 where it says this, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I wish I had more time to unpack that, but but all I'm going to say about that is this, is that 
I think this is one of the most difficult commands in the Bible. It's not a walk in the park for anyone. As if you're a husband, you're to love your wife like Jesus loves the church. This will involve sacrifice and pain. And what this means is that the longer your wife is married to you, the more she should feel like she's married to Jesus. It's incredible, and I know I fall short of that. If you're a wife or you're going to be one, how do you help your husband? Well, help him. Don't hurt him. Don't hinder him. Don't um, humiliate him. Pray for him. Respect him. Encourage him. Ask him how you can help him and encourage him as he leads you. Model to us what, what it looks like to follow Jesus by following your husband. Now today, if you're unmarried and you desire to be married, then it's important that when you look for a future spouse, that you look at someone who is godly enough to lead you or godly enough to help you. And finally, if you're unmarried and thankful for the gift that God has given you of singleness, please encourage those who are married to remember how God has designed marriage, to remember them not to idolize marriage, but to worship Jesus. From Genesis 2, we learn two truths. We learn the desire of marriage and the design of marriage. Now I want us to do is I want us sort of to zoom out of Genesis 2 and I want to sort of do a really quick survey for my third point, which is the purpose of marriage. So what is the purpose of marriage according to the scriptures? Well, in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, we see the distortion of marriage. We're going to look at that in more detail in a few weeks. But what we see is that God says to Adam in 2.15 not to eat from this forbidden tree called the tree of uh, good and evil. And what do we see in Genesis 3? Well, Instead of Eve helping her husband to obey God, Eve helps her husband to disobey God. Instead of Adam leading his wife and battering that fruit out of her hand, he takes a bite from the fruit out of her hand. And by doing this, what we see is that sin enters the story of redemption and its consequences follow. Immediately what we see is we see where there was, there's division, where there was unity, there's hatred, where there was love, there is shame, where there was honor. When God approaches them, what happens? Adam blames Eve, Eve plays the snake, and then God blames them all. In Genesis 3, we see the distortion of marriage, and it sets the tone for marriages in the rest of Old Testament. The Old Testament is basically a case study of bad marriages, you know, it doesn't take long. Just look at Genesis 4 and then you see Lamech and how he's married multiple women and had multiple issues. Or you look at Abraham in Genesis chapter 16 and his wife says to him, sleep with my servant. And he goes ahead and does so. And there's multiple issues that occur there. Or what about King David? He married at least eight women. And one of the women he married, he married her after he raped her and killed her husband. And then his son Solomon, he thought having wives was a hobby. He had 700 of them. And then he had 300 mistresses to cheat on them with. Throughout the Old Testament, it's just case study after case study of bad marriages. And as you read it, you think, God, what is the point of marriage? Like, why did you bring this in? But then all of a sudden, you come across some really incredible verses in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And it talks about how God is the husband of his people, how he is married to his people, how he loves his people. And you think, oh, cool, this is going to be a good marriage. We're going to see a good marriage. But then Israel, God's people, we're told, continually cheats on him by worshipping other gods. But then all of a sudden you get to the New Testament, you get to Jesus. And in Matthew 9, he says he is the bridegroom. We are told that the church is the bride. And then in Revelation 6, uh, 19, we learn about the final marriage. We learn about the marriage between the lamb and his bride, the church. 
And then what we see here is finally the good marriage. What we see here is finally the good husbands. You see, in the first marriage, what did you have? You had Adam, and at the time when his wife needed him most, he wasn't there for her, and he didn't lead her, or he didn't help her. And yet we see in Jesus, we see the perfect groom. The time when his church needed him at the cross, he was there. What we see is that Jesus is the perfect husband to his people, that he pursues his wife, that he loves his wife so much that he comes down to earth in the form of a human, and then he goes to the cross to die for his church, so he may redeem his church, so that their sins may be wiped away, so that they may be as white as a wedding dress. In the beginning, there was a marriage that failed to fill the earth with God's children. But in the end, there is a marriage that fills the earth with God's children. You see, the purpose of marriage is to point to God's love for his people. How God is the ultimate husband and how his church is his bride. Now, if you're a dude, that might freak you out. You're like, Joel, I don't, I don't want to be known as a bride or a wife. Like, like, is there something sexual going on here? No, not at all. It is purely metaphorical. It's trying to just describe to you God's love for you. And no, you will not put on a dress one day, but you will be as white as a wedding dress before your creator because of what Christ has done at the cross to wipe away the dirtiness of your sin. The Bible begins with a marriage. It ends with a marriage. Marriage is a key theme in the Bible and it helps us to understand the story of redemption, the story of grace, how we're not forgiven by what we do, but what Jesus has done. And today from Genesis chapter 2 and for the rest of the Bible, we've learned three truths about marriage. We've learned firstly that the desire for marriage is rooted in how God designed humanity for community. Secondly, we learned how God designed marriage to be a complementary partnership between two people who have got equal worth but different responsibilities. And thirdly, that the purpose of marriage is to be a sign that points towards God's outrageous love for his people. In our world, marriage is something that people either despise or desire. As Christians who are married or unmarried, it should be something that we delight in, as it's a temporary sign that highlights God's love for his people. And so if you're married or you're not married, the next time you're at a wedding, celebrate the wedding, but also remember what it's pointing towards and celebrate your Savior and what he did on the cross for you. Let me pray to close. Father God, we are blown away by your mercy. We have fallen short. We have been unfaithful to you, and yet you pursue us and love us despite the pain that it costs you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of marriage, and Lord, I pray that you help us, Lord, not to idolize it or demonize it, but Lord, to delight in it and to be thankful that it points towards the gospel. Lord, we know that the Bible begins with a marriage and ends with a marriage. But we know one day there'll be no marriages between humans, but only between us and you. That one day we'll all have the perfect groom. Lord, I pray that you help us to understand what that means. Lord, you give us humility. And Lord, I pray in particular that we look to your scriptures to understand what is your design for marriage. And Lord, we may invest in your community because you've designed us for community. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.